Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello to our fellow royal lovers. Welcome back to Royally Us, where we break down everything about our favorite family. I'm Joe Drake. Joining me this week while Molly is out is my very special guest co-host, royal insider, and someone who's become a friend of mine via Zoom, Stuart Pierce. Hi, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm a little hoarse from the weekend. I lost my voice a little bit, but I'm, so I'm in a, a little bit of a lower register this week. <laughs> this is good, but it's good. It's good. It's, I mean, it, it sounds sexy, right? Not as good as your voice, though. Well, you know, you give me um, you give me the perfect advantage to say, "Let me help." Not now, obviously, but at some point, yes. I'm a voice coach. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to have to call you after this, and we'll go over some things. Well, let's get uh, right into the news because Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are in the news every week. But this week, they are stepping up to help with, with what's going on in Afghanistan. Of course, the whole world is watching with what's going on there. But the Duke and Duchess of Sussex donated to the organization, which empowers disenfranchised Afghan women and girls in Afghanistan and actually here in New York as well. Uh, Stuart, what do you make of a lot of people that watch our show are sort of anti-Harry and Meghan, I must say. But do you think they at least support their charitable work? Well, I, I believe absolutely in their integrity, in, in the support of all the charitable aspects that they're involved in. But if we reflect, you know, if those people who maybe have um, a gripe um, if for some reason against the nature of the way that Harry and Meghan have been very exposed in their commentary, if we go back to the Invictus Games. This was something that Harry created when he actually was asked to lead 10 years of service in the British Army. And of course, we know that he was actually involved in two major campaigns in Afghanistan. He was asked to lead because of security. Otherwise, who knows? Maybe he would still be there today. Um, So as a result of that, he felt um, not necessarily an onus, but a huge responsibility to the troops that had actually been mortally wounded 
in some way, or if they hadn't been mortally wounded in losing their lives, they'd lost limbs. And so in creating the Invictus Games, which Michelle and and, uh, Barack Obama were principally involved in, and that was one of the principal offsets when he first met Meghan, because there they were in Toronto, And of course, that was where she was living because of creating, you know, making suits. And so we first saw Meghan with Harry publicly at the Invictus Games. So I I believe that that gives us sway to understand the the process charitably in relation to the way that they're supporting the extraordinary situation in Afghanistan, particularly in support of the, the women, that this is part of the cause. How can we actually vilify them for that? Right. I absolutely agree. And that's a perfect point. I forgot about the Invictus case. I mean, I realize it, but in terms of him meeting Megan and, you know, their charitable work, it was no surprise to me when I found out that they were donating to this, this organization. The Women for Afghan Women organization came out with a statement saying, quote, we are immensely grateful for the generosity of the Archwell Foundation in support of our efforts to evacuate and relocate thousands of Afghan women, children, families, and including our staff. Um, wow. So I think this is a wonderful thing. And that's what I, I always go back to. And people always comment in the comment section of the show and say that I'm too favorable to Harry and Meghan. But it's at times like this that I'm reminded of, you know, you people may disagree with decisions they've made in terms of leaving. But I think their heart is in the right place when it comes to things like this. Yes, I mean, if we look, if we go below the surface, which is a very troubled, uh, a very troubled zone, isn't it? Because it's disturbed by a lot of the rancor that has been expressed by the British press and also by the Australian press, which, you know, as you've heard me say on a number of occasions, is blown out of all proportion in relation to the people that I know at both Kensington Palace and at Buckingham Palace. Um, you know, if we actually look into the fact that they've that what they're stepping forward doing is to be as transparent as they possibly can, which it comes from the result of being involved in victimization. It comes from all of the extraordinary discoveries that they've made through the psycho- psychotherapeutic interventions that they've been through. So maybe the exposure that is their transparency is felt by some people as being garish or overly transparent because it's full of the conviction of will. We will expose this. What, what's also interesting is that they have never, in their exposure, in their expositions, they've never been vitriolic, they've never been vile, they've never been revengeful, they've never been angry, they've just simply stated fact. Right. And what's interesting is that's very unusual for we, we human beings to hear, because we're literally soaking in a blame culture. Where blame and accusation is the second parlance, you know, and what they're trying to do, I believe, is to heal that in part by bringing insight and resolution in. So, um, you know, uh, I, I don't feel personally bound by the blame and the insults that are moving forward, because I feel that what they're doing is they're trying to simply be, as I was just saying, very transparent and using all of the techniques that they've gained to empower themselves. I think that's absolutely, you know, it's glorious that they're doing that. And, you know, they're stepping forward in a way that many other people will over the next 10 years, because mental health is the number one priority. And 
And what we're going to see as we come out of COVID, because obviously, as we all know, COVID has left. It's just it hasn't left us. <laughs> and so what we're going to see is a tremendous amount of PTSD in relation to those people who have been in social isolation. And as they step forward, a lot of people in the United States, the people, the clients that are coming to me, and there are hundreds coming at the moment, that they are agoraphobic. And so right. we're going to see that the measures that Harry and Meghan are introducing to us about being brave, about being courageous, about our own personal transparency are going to be really unique. So, you know, there they are at the brow of the ship, and there's a tremendous amount of water being being sprayed up onto the brow of their ship. I think they're extraordinary, the amount of courage that they're showing. I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, someone else that's making headlines this week who is used to some of the hate going her way, similar to Harry and Meghan, is Sarah Ferguson. And she gave an interview to Tea with Twiggy, which is a podcast. And I was actually surprised about this, Stuart. Maybe you can give me some insight. She was actually gushing over her former mother-in-law, Queen Elizabeth II. I sort of felt like since her departure and divorce from Prince Andrew, that she might not speak so highly of the royal family anymore. But she was saying that Queen was her, quote, greatest mentor. And even after the divorce that she continues, she said, quote, I think to myself that honestly, my mother-in-law has been more of a mother to me than my own mother. Were you surprised to hear this? Not in the slightest, no, because the, those of us who know that both Andrew and Sarah Ferguson are once more living together. Right. They're living together at the Royal Lodge in Windsor Great Park which is a very fabled royal resonance, which was lived in for many, many, many years by Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. So it's favoured by the Queen and by her principal children as being the most sacred oasis. It is extraordinary. I mean, as a child, my father was involved in the royal family as a royal servant. So I, I would visit copiously, and it was absolutely extraordinary. Now, what happens, which we don't know about, is that the Queen, when she's re residing at, Westman, uh, at Windsor Castle, visits, she drives herself a distance of just 10-minute drive to the Royal Lodge in Windsor Great Park and has tea virtually every single week every single Saturday and Sunday. So what's happened over the last five years, particularly, is there's, there has become this greatly, this very close, complicit, intrinsic union between the Queen, Andrew, Fergie, and the two daughters. Uh, and their husbands. That is great. And I guess I just assumed, being over here in America, that once Fergie was sort of left and sort of, you know, did some controversial things, that she was almost sent away. But I guess I knew that she was living with Andrew. So it makes sense that they would have this sort of family bond even after divorce. It's very extraordinary. You know, it's one of those <laughs> bizarre relationships. <laughs> Obviously, they both came to it very young from an emotional point of view, and they lived as successfully as they possibly could. And then Andrew immediately became involved in the Royal Navy. And Ferg Fer Sarah Ferguson, Fergie, was left alone in Buckingham Palace for large amounts of time. I mean, we're talking about months and months and months and months. Wow. And she's a lady that is full of the most extraordinary vitality and obviously 
obviously was with her young husband and just simply wanted the love of his body next to her and he wasn't there. So things went awry. And as a result of that, she started to explore what that was all about. You know, she started to explore the capacity of her loving mechanisms elsewhere. That's that's what happens, right? But now they're really realizing the extraordinary union that they have together. Wow, I love that. Um, Fergie said on the podcast, I just wanted to read this quote. She said, quote, I absolutely admire the incredible way her majesty is so modern and how flexible and how understanding and how forgiving and generous and kind. I absolutely think there is no greater mentor. The consistency of her majesty has been a great honor, a huge honor, and makes me want to cry. I mean, when I read that, I need to go and listen to this podcast and hear her say it, but just reading the quote, it makes me so happy to hear that there is such a special relationship to this, to this day. Yes, and I feel that Her Majesty has tempered very considerably and has expanded her latitude, you know, has expanded her bandwidth as a result of what she's been through, because she knows that she's moving towards, not through her salad days, but she's moving towards a point of seniority where how long she will be, she will be alive, heaven knows. So mm-hmm. she's determined to cultivate a very profound sense of, of legacy. She's a very devout Christian, and what comes with that is compassion, unconditional love, understanding, forgiveness, and mercy. And after all, her favorite son, Prince Andrew, has been through a little bit of a skirmish over the last couple of years. And and that still (laughs) has not actually been, you know, it hasn't moved to its final resolution. And so, you know, she's there supporting in the most extraordinary way. Right. Fergie has come, speaking of that, uh, Fergie has come out and saying that she uh, believes his innocence. What do you make of that? I mean, clearly, clearly that proves that they are on good terms if she's willing to go to bat for her ex-husband in this way over some very heinous allegations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, who knows, frankly? Right, <laughs> at this point, right. Just psychologically looking at what you're, what you're talking about and the nuance that's involved, the point is that he is saying categorically, I don't know who this young woman was. Right, and, right. Um, you know, he may have been a friend of Epstein, but the fact is he didn't know who this young woman was. So we have to accept that that's ipso facto truth. Right. Um, you know, it, it, OK, so he had an eye, as any strapping young man does, for the, the, the attraction of the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever, whatever our sexuality is. And um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he became a sex offender. It just that right. you know, he's unfortunate in his choice of friends. That's all. This doesn't mean to say that he was engaged in orgies or whatever the, you know, the tabloid press is suggesting he was. Right. Well, we will see, like you said, until, until, you know, for now, that's the case. But we'll see how this plays out. It'll be interesting. Um, The next news story, which I found interesting because I did. I've been forgetting so much of what has been on pause because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But there was the first changing of the guard in over a year. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I forgot. There are these ceremonial things that happened all over the world that you just forget things that have been on such an indefinite pause. But uh, Buckingham Palace hosted its first changing of the guard ceremony since March of 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic was uh, forced its suspension. Um, And it happened just yesterday. 
That's right. Yeah. And I could hear it from where I am. So I'm not far from Buckingham Palace. And it was a very loud applause. That's it. <laughs> Apart from the, you know, the mass bands playing. Yeah, it's it's very extraordinary. So, the, you know, when we look into these tokens of tradition and heritage that, um, that live within the context of the British royal family here, and how the wonder and the awe that you wonderful United States citizens have for that. We do. It's very, it's very extraordinary when we see the marker of what this means, which is why I can safely say COVID has left. Right. It's just COVID has not left us. Uh, you know, uh, because when, when, the, when a traditional um, effect takes place, which is at core, not just a ceremony, but a ritual, and ritual binds we people in our cultures. And what's wonderful about this particular ritual is that it actually brings together the communion of world citizens. Mm -hmm. And as we've just been through a world pandemic of unprecedented global proportion, the very fact that this has actually happened has sent a satellite beam around the world saying, hey, let's be hopeful. COVID is gone, but has it left your consciousness? Right. Absolutely. And another stunning thing to read about this, and I'm not surprised, but still stunning nonetheless, was it was the longest suspension of this since World War II. Since World War II, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I also read, too, that since you could hear it from your home, I'm wondering, they played Whitney Houston's song One Moment in Time. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's absolutely. one of my favorite Whitney songs. So when I read that, I wonder why they chose that. Well, just for you. Just for me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you know that the host of Royally Us for Us Weekly needed to hear Whitney? <laughs> Well, you see, I feel, you know, bearing in mind that um, there has been um, an eruption within the, within the hegemony, within the hierarchy. The eruption took place because of Harry and Meghan leaving in the way that they did. Although, of course, their departure was well known about by Prince Charles, by the Queen, and also by Prince William, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, way before we knew about it. Right. You can just imagine, for example, when Harry, full of love for his wife or you know, for the lady that he was falling in love with, arrived back and went immediately to see Her Majesty to say, I've fallen in love. Now, the first thing that she would do as a grandmother is to say, wow, who is it? Well, she's an American. Oh, and she's an actress. Oh, and she's biracial. Oh, and she's a divorcee. Oh, yeah. Are you sure? And Harry would say, well, I've fallen in love. Okay, now let's take this easily. Let's just court her for a year and then let's talk again. And then they talked again. I mean, I, I understand through the people that I know who come to me as clients that this is exactly what happened. And when he said, no, I'm emphatic, I want to marry. But obviously the, the strategy was created. And the first thing that Her Majesty said was, what happens if this doesn't work with the British people? So the whole strategy was developed right at the very beginning. It came as a shock to us, but actually the mechanism was always, always there, do you see? All of the possibilities. That's how pragmatic Her Majesty is, which is why she's able to fly like an eagle over the whole thing, just observing and not getting caught up in the corruption or the vilification or the negativity. Well, now it's time to spill the royal tea. 
And this is uh, actually a segment where we would normally introduce you, but since you're here, I don't have to reintroduce you. You're my special co-host all episode long, which I'm so excited about. But I did want to ask you in this segment, some things that we haven't been able to discuss since the last time you were on. Um, mm-hmm. And if you, if you remember the last time we spoke, you were about to head to see the statue of Princess Diana. That's right, yeah. What did you think? <laughs> because you would let, well, let me preface by saying you weren't, you didn't seem that enthusiastic with the photos. So I'm curious as to your thoughts now that you've seen it in person. I think it's an extraordinary statement, a real statement about the nature of the legacy that Diana brings to us, that her spirit is still with us in relation to the children of the world. Right. And so really evocative as far as the Diana Awards are concerned. And in fact, as a result of that, a young man who gained a Diana Award five years ago at the age of 10 has come to me and asked me to give him a Zoom interview. The statue, I love the color of the statue. I love it. What I also find very interesting is the maturity within the statue. I feel that we, you know, that we're very used to the delicacy, to the vulnerability and to the sensitivity of Diana as she was beginning to emerge as the svelte executive woman. And what we're seeing is a very mature woman in the statue. Um, That presumably is the predestination for the fact that it's going to be standing there for some considerable amount of time. Right. Um, I feel it's also a very male perspective. And, um, you know, to me, a very heterosexual male perspective. Because... The delicacy, the very lyrical nature and the elegance of Diana is not really recorded in the statue, but she's robust and strong and therefore supporting the extraordinary nature, as I've just said, of what the legacy is all about, which is extraordinary. The way that young kids today who weren't even born when she died are saying, we feel Diana is an angel. Absolutely. And I I agree with that, actually, just from seeing the photos, there's almost an ageless quality to your point about the maturity doesn't necessarily look like Princess Diana at age 30. doesn't necessarily look like what Princess Diana may have looked like at age 70, but kind of all of the above and in between. Yes, yes, yes. What was the experience like and who did you go with? Uh, Unfortunately, I can't reveal that because it was all personal, personal, uh, you know, uh, palace personnel. Oh, um, so a noticed. very VIP crowd. It was a VIP crowd, and I was asked to be highly confidential about the whole thing. Okay. Um, but it was charming. We we visited. We spent at least half an hour by the statue. I personally found it very moving because it's so evocative, you know, in the sense of the fact that the, the garden itself was the sunken garden, which, which is where Diana loved to be for quiet time for her silent solitude and stillness time so she could regain energy. And, uh, you know, it's been completely redesigned with so many of her favorite flowers. So it felt as though her whole spirit was there. So I was very, very moved by the whole thing. There's a stillness there, which was not there before, I seem to remember. And so the gardeners and the, the, the people who, you know, the landscape architects did the most extraordinary um, uh, job about the whole thing. So yeah. it was very evocative, really, very special. 
Well, I can't wait to get over there and see it. I'm going to have to go with you. You'll have to go back with me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when you come over, we'll go. If I, well, if, if I'm here then. <laughs> right, right. Well, I want to move on to the news that Prince Harry is releasing a memoir because I believe this news came out since we spoke last. Mm. What do you make of this? Uh, were you surprised? And do you think that the royal family is a bit disgruntled by this news? Well, I'm sure that they're probably feeling slightly anxious. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Um, but, you know, the spirit of the memoir obviously comes with the inspiration of what he's been through over the last three years in the major exposition that he sought uh, in relation to the emotional autopsy that he's been through, because it was one of the constituent parts of the relationship that he had established with Meghan. But when she saw the quality of how his irritation could easily move into anger, and into rage, and that it was an untold rage. She said, look, I think you really, I feel you really need to do something about this. And it wasn't that the rage was taken out in relation to her. It was much more to do the outrage of what was taking place in relation to the way that they were being vilified by the press. Right. And so he's been through three years of in-depth psychotherapy. And there are three constituent parts, which is, one is complete honesty, complete transparency. The second is transformation. And the third is transmutation of turning negative into positive. And so I believe the spirit of what he's been through has provided him with an extraordinarily clear um, landscape of what he was experiencing before from a position of great depth from an emotional point of view. And, you know, they both, they both speak very spiritually, you know, the, in the sense of wanting to be charitable, wanting to be engaged in inclusivity, in human dignity and common respect. I mean, that's what I mean by spiritual virtues. Right. So I'm sure that the memoir will be punctured full of these qualities of action. And uh, there won't be anything in terms of accusation not, not at all. You know, he's in a situation of transformation, which is about in support and in full responsibility for his position in relation to, you know, the, the establishment, where his, where his brother will be in a few years' time, um, you know, in terms of the, his own ascendancy within the royal family, et cetera, et cetera. So really remarkable. And I'm sure he's going to be, you know, 150% in support of all the all the troops that he worked with, all the men and women that he worked with in Afghanistan, because that moved him very deeply. Yes, absolutely. I'm curious, obviously, because you were friends with Princess Diana, what do you think she would make of her son writing this memoir? Supportive? Oh, completely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> after all, <laughs> Andrew Morton... And the, and the Diana Diaries, and then the exposition, which was not full of, it was not because of her revenge. She just simply wanted to explore the, the whole of what her contemporary situation was as she moved into the Martin Bashir interview. Um, you know, it was unfortunate that she was hoodwinked into it. Uh, I met Martin Bashir. I didn't find him insidious in the slide, in the slightest. But the uh, it seems that the situation was cooked by the BBC, and unfortunate disadvantages were gained as a result of that. Which, of course, is a, another aspect of the age that we're living in, which is about transparency. So the truth has to come out, and the falsehood will be exposed. Right. Uh, but Diana was gleeful about the statements that she made during those interviews. Um, and so, or rather the latter interview, but in very, very specific detail. And so Harry is so much like his mother 
in the sense that he has an impetuosity. So he right. moves on instinct, just as she did. I mean, sometimes I would say, oh, are you really going to engage yourself in that? That's, that I mean, that's quite strong. And she would say, yeah, I've got to, you know, and would do it. And then would learn what she needed to learn about what, whatever was created, you know, because when we're impetuous, we often are rather like a cat among the pigeons. The pigeons fly. Right. I Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because it's my assumption that Princess Diana would want both her sons to tell their stories 100% truthfully. Utterly. Right. But I'm not sure if we'll get as truthful of a story from William ever because he will be the next king. Yes. I mean, he still needs to explore the fight, the nuancial and subtle dynamics of what duty really means. Duty in terms of what he already perceives, you know, by the fundamental training that he received in the British Army, because that's actually all about not me, it's all about we in relation to your fellow, your fellow soldiers and your fellow officers. Um, so he learned that very, very extraordinarily. But after all, we know that the position that he's about to inherit, it's going to be very interesting to see, well, will P Prince Charles sit in the throne or will he create some form of shift in constitutional law to allow his son to s sit in the throne? So that's going to be very interesting. I mean, at the moment, obviously, the right of ascendancy is that Charles will sit in the throne. But I don't necessarily see Queen Camilla. I don't, I don't either. I didn't know that was an option, that Prince Charles could do that. It, it's not. Oh. But it, it could be constitutional law could be revoked and changed. Because after all, we're living in extraordinary times. Right. You know, if we go back, for example, in reflection to the substance of divorce, that Princess Margaret could not marry a divorced man. But today, Prince Harry has just married a divorced lady. Right. Well, that's what I was going to bring up about Fergie's relationship with the Queen. It would make me think of her relationship with her sister when it was so forbidden that Princess Margaret Rose couldn't, you know, go the way she wanted to go. And that, you know, now the Queen is close with Fergie and had a good relationship with Meghan. Harry married a divorcee. It's interesting how things change, even within the royal family. This is what's so extraordinary about her, as we were saying at the very beginning, you know, apropos uh, Fergie, that the Queen has a latitude, she has a bandwidth, which is really extraordinary. I mean, although this is a lady, but from a social point of view, her profile is from a time gone by, Right. the way that it sounds, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, inside, she is a wise, wise sage. And so she moves with the time. She sort of rolls with the punches. Yeah. I it, mean, is, that being said, uh, she will probably be known as one of the greatest human beings, women, figures, and world history forever and ever because of that. Um, I want to move on, though, quickly and uh, get your take. We've been hearing reports that Megan wanted to uh, invite Kate to work on a Netflix documentary. Uh, but I also heard reports that that is false. What have you been hearing? 
Does that sound a little too far fetched for now? Or I, I think it's I think it's stretching imagination somewhat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what's what's happening is that we're seeing that they both have very clearly defined roles that do not correspond. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean as women within the family. I don't mean as you know um, the the wives of these two extraordinary princes. I'm talking about the statement that they're making individually as women. But Kate right, has right. her own specific role, which is very different from the way that Meghan has her own specific role. Right. Um, so I, that's that's where I sit with it. Yeah, we will see. I mean, I again, I say this every episode to try to reiterate to the viewers how I feel. I I love William, Kate, Harry, and Meghan so much in their own ways that I really do hope for, and maybe maybe they already are kind of getting back on the same page. But I as a person of their generation want want to see the four of them continue to lead and have a have a very strong foundation yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, I know that the four are talking with one another and they're talking via Zoom, they're talking via FaceTime, but they're very close with one another. But look, they're very different people. And so right. their, okay. their lens on the world is highly individualized. And what's remarkable is that they all totally respect that this lens is different. Right. And it's defined largely from a cultural perspective, isn't it? Because if William and Kate were living in the United States, the lens of their express the expression, the lens of their creative realization would be completely different from how it is living here in right. support of the nature of the hegemony, the, the hierarchy. It's very simple. Do you think with since you know that they're uh, in communication, do you think it's very formal or do you think that they sort of get on and do what we all do and sort of laugh and talk about, you know, whatever? It's really informal. It's like, did you watch Netflix last evening? Uh, we watching this amazing. I think RuPaul is amazing. <laughs> oh, I would just die if I could be a fly on the wall of a FaceTime between them and they're talking about drag race. <laughs> and there is Kate cooking dinner in the kitchen, basting a chicken, a roast chicken, because that's what they love. And Prince uh, and William rather is making cu cups of tea because the children have already gone to bed. And they're watching movie. RuPaul on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> that's you, what it's like. That's what it's like. I love it because that just sort of makes sense. Do you think that they're talking about the crazy things that are in the news about them or they just ignore and enjoy the family? It's too painful. I think, you know, those things that are crazy, we just leave them where they are because after all, we know that if we go into the body of what that invective is all about, it's really stings. So right, there's right. so much of it, you know, and it's it's not that William and uh, William and Kate leave all the controversy about Harry and Meghan alone. Um, what the, it, the, they feel it, but what they do is they just simply position it there because, after all, it's not their responsibility to be involved in you know verbalizing anything apropos. It what they do is just simply offer as much peace and tranquility and calm as possible. I love that. Well, yeah. Stuart, this has been such a joy. Before you go, we have about five minutes left. 
I want to play a quick uh, rapid fire game. Since you are such a dear friend of Princess Diana, as we've known through all the times you've joined us on our show, I wanted to play a quick fun game and ask you some silly questions of things you might know about the Princess of Wales. Uh, some fun questions that you may know of that we may not. So first off, what was her drink of choice? Loved Chablis. Really? Yeah, chilled white wine, loved it. Okay, how did she take her tea? Uh, Earl Grey, without milk. Without milk. Uh, what do you think her favorite place to travel was? Oh, gosh. New York City. The best city in the world, where I'm it's at. Diana's Bliss City. Really? She loved it. Oh, I, could, I, I, I so wish she's still with us that I could imagine her living here. You know, full yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, what was her favorite kind of weather? Oh, Caribbean style. Really? Yeah. Because, you know, from uh, a stimuli point of view and metropolitan life, New York comes in. But if we're talking about holiday location and chilling, because you see, she was always in water. She had right. to be in water. And also she's a water sign. She's a cancer. She was a cancer, I should say. Oh, right, right. And so the Caribbean, she loved the Caribbean. Second after that would be the Cote d'Azur, would be the South France. Oh, I love that. Was she a night owl or a morning person? She was a morning person because much of her royal career, she was insomniac. So she'd get up really early. I mean, really early, like five o'clock. She was wide awake. So Diana would go to, go to bed late and would crash. And then she would wake up two or three hours later and would want to get on and do stuff. So she would jump into the car and drive a, um, a distance of about 10 minutes to Buckingham Palace and swim 20 lengths of the oh. pool every morning. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Of, of course, all of us are obsessed with the fashion that Princess Diana graced us with. Does she have a favorite outfit? Yeah. You know, um, I was I'm about to interview Bruce Oldfield for my next book about Diana, which is about her legacy. Um, she loved wearing Bruce's. Uh, oh, there was an extraordinary gown that he created. Oh, my goodness. If I forget it. Of course, there's the Valentino blue gown that she wore. And there's the, the Jacques Azaguri. I've just interviewed Jacques. The Jacques wow. Azaguri cocktail dress, which, of course, was with that very, very low decolletage. Wow, I love it. Um, she, of course, met a lot of celebrities and public figures. Was there a public figure that she bonded with uh, more than the others? Or was she not really that impressed? <laughs> oh, no, she no, she loved, I mean, Michael Jackson, she was really, really deep mm. in my But look, I mean, you know, Michael was going through whatever process he was going through at that time. No, the person that stands out super, super, super um, focused was Elton John. Of course. Oh. And Elton would spend a lot of time at KP, at Kensington Palace. Interesting. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question. What was the type of music she loved listening to and any specific artist? Oh, I mean, you know, really, I mean, she had a very eclectic taste. Yeah. So it was I mean, popular, popular music, popular music. But then, of course, this is before um, we had iPods, which we yes. don't no longer, we no longer particularly have. But you know, <laughs> the iPod came along. So she used a Sonny Walkman and cassettes. So she was always listening to the popular sound of the day. And if it wasn't that, she would move straight to Rachmaninoff 
or Tchaikovsky <laughs> or Grieg or, you know, one of the light romantic um, classical writers. I love that. All right, last but not least, what was her favorite activity to do with her sons, Prince William and Prince Harry? Uh, really being on the beach. She loved being mm. on the beach and watching them windsurf and swim and so forth. She loved those private times away. That's when they really bonded and particularly got away from all of the attention that was constantly creening for her to, um, you know, pawn to, so to speak. I love that. Well, Stuart Pierce, thank you so much. You are such Bless a- you. I love speaking to you. I could do this all day, every day. And well, you know, as you, it's very kind of you. I mean, I do want to promise you something. There's a story I want to tell you at some point, not now, because okay. I know we need to go. But there's a story about my experience when I was nine years of age with Her Majesty the Queen when she found me being naughty in Buckingham Palace. I'm the, the real woman that she is. Uh, I'll tell you about it sometime. All right, that's a good tease. We're going to have you back whenever you want. And we look forward to more books coming out. You say you're writing. Yeah. I'm writing Thanks. a book, yeah, the second book about Diana. I, we can't wait. Well, Stuart Pierce, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I'll call you for some uh, vocal exercises. Send me an email yeah. with what I should yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. Okay. <laughs> I'll Thanks. get your email. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Stuart. Bless, bless you. Bless Take you. care. That's it for another episode of Royally Us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>